and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we'll be listening in on one of the sessions from Third Sector's recent fundraising conference discussing individual giving and grassroots fundraising. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got a fancy dress costume challenge described as miserable, but which raised £100,000 for charity. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. But first, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you'll know that last week was the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Platy jubes, Rebecca, I know you enjoyed it. (laughs) Which coincided with the announcement of the Queen's Birthday Honours List. Every time somebody says platy jubes, I get a bit more Republican. I'm just, I'm sorry. (laughs) Just, no, stop it. But yes, literally hundreds of voluntary sector figures were awarded an honour this time round for the Queen's Birthday Honours, uh, including the Chief Executive of Arts Council England, Darren Henley, who was awarded a CBE, and Anne Lim, former chair of the Scouts Association, who was made a dame. Joyce Fraser, the founder of the Black Heroes Foundation, received an OBE, and Seb Ellsworth, Chief Executive of Access, the Foundation for Social Investment, and a regular third sector contributor, got an MBE, um, presumably for his services to this great magazine. Who knows? Um, So yeah, congratulations to everyone who got an award. Um, But Russell, I've got to ask, do you think you'd accept an honour? Before I answer that, which does sound like the more complex question, when do I get an MBE for my services to third sector? I've been here for three months. You've been here for three whole months. So do I I get a call from the Queen? Should I be waiting by my phone, do you think? Uh, Yeah, probably. Probably. Uh, Yeah, it should happen within sort of the first... I don't, obviously, I, I don't use my full title Dame Rebecca Cooney very regularly <laughs> but I, it should happen within the first six months I think. yeah regular listeners will know the power that Rebecca has in each circle so I will <laughs> I will wait and see um Listen, I, uh, unusually, would I accept an honour? Yeah, I think I would. I, I'm not sure I'm with the zeitgeist of the charity sector, which is um, sort of very carefully scrutinising every sort of um, dotted I and, and cross T of this. I'm not sure that I would have much of an objection to it at all. Um, back many, many years ago, when I first worked in the charity sector for a small asylum seeker charity, my boss, herself the daughter of refugees, had, had fled Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And she dedicated 25 years of her life to helping refugees of the next generation at this charity. Um, and she was given an OBE. She went, she took her parents, she got her photo taken with whichever member of minor royalty it was that gave her <laughs> what she wanted. And it was the greatest day of her life. And she was so proud with her parents. And even the cynical journalist in me looks at this sort of thing and thinks, would I want to tell people that they should kind of second guess whether they should do this or that maybe that great day of their life sort of should be coloured in some way in a way they don't enjoy? Living in the present, I just don't think that it's kind of for me to say, if I'm honest. So I think I probably would say yes, as you rightly point out, I'm not sure that anything is in carriage for me at the moment. But listen, <laughs> if you're listening, I, I wouldn't embarrass you by saying no. Um, lots of charity folks are on that list. Lots of volunteers, lots of people who've given their life to this sector and have done great things for their yeah. neighbours and for their communities. And I, I just can't bring myself to be sort of particularly grumpy about it. Yeah, fair enough. Rebecca, uh, what about you? I mean, you've already got a damehood. You've revealed that. But um, uh, how difficult was it to accept that? For the sake of accuracy, I think I probably ought to say I, I do not, in fact, have a damehood. Um, no, uh, I, like, I think I would balk at sort of having anything with the word empire attached to my name. Um, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with the Excellence Not Empire campaign, which, as the name suggests, is, is a group of people trying to change the basically what that E stands for at the end of OBE, MBE. Um so yeah, I I kind of I can, I, and I also I I see what you're saying about sort of you know I I wouldn't necessarily frown at anybody else for taking up that offer. I completely see why, and I think the people who are recognised do deserve to be recognised. And I think that's probably why I kind of have so much sympathy for the Excellence Not Empire because I think 
if you're going to start saying, well, you can't have anything with empire, actually, probably the people who are going to feel strongest about that, you're going to end up excluding certain demographics mm. from getting honours, which is really unhelpful, right? That's not that's not what you want to achieve at all. Um, and yeah, like you say, I can absolutely see the appeal of taking my parents to the palace. I think, I think, I think my mum would love that. I think my dad would love that. Like, yeah, I can, I can absolutely see the appeal of it. But um, yeah. My uh, my brother got married very recently and my mum wore the biggest hat you've ever seen. So if it's possible that she could get one more wear out of that hat, I think Buckingham Palace is where she could do it. So again, that's another incentive for anybody who's tempted to um, to pass word down the line that I'm due what well, I think everyone would agree. I, yeah. I, oh, I mean, what would that honour be for, do we think? Um, so this is a bit difficult because... Um, I'm not quite sure what I've done that would ever get recognition. I think um, maybe services to very boring tweets. Mm, services to snark. Yes. Well, both of us will qualify for yeah, that. Yeah, I think, think so. um, yeah, Derby... for yourself on the boring tweets. My tweets are great. <laughs> um, I'm a Derby County fan who um, used to work for the Liberal Democrats. So I wonder if I've done my service to sort of lost causes as well. <laughs> I, I, I'd happily have that. Okay, so it sounds like the palace isn't going to come knocking soon then. But uh, congratulations to everyone who did get an honour in the sector. Last month, Third Sector held its annual fundraising conference. The digital event took place over two days with delegates hearing from fundraisers and other experts from across the country. Third Sector's editor, Emily Burt, often of this parish, hosted a session entitled Going Back to Grassroots, Building Up Individual Giving with the Local Community. She was joined by Sarah Shooter, Head of Development at the Theatre Royal Wakefield, and Amar Afari Darko, who is fundraising manager at the Royal Opera House. The audio you're about to hear was taken directly from the session, which was held via Zoom, so the quality isn't perfect in places, but we hope you'll bear with us as it was a really interesting chat. Uh, the panel discussed the underestimated benefit of individual giving within an overall fundraising strategy, building an effective membership scheme, and how to thank and steward your donors. So here's Emily to introduce the speakers. Hello everyone and welcome back. I hope that you have been finding today interesting and thought-provoking so far. I am Emily Burt and I'm the editor of Third Sector and I'm delighted to be chairing this afternoon's fireside chat where we're going to be talking about how charities can build individual giving within their local communities. So I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Shooter and Amar Afori Darko, who are going to be sharing their insights with us today. Hi both. Sarah, would you like to briefly introduce yourself and tell us all a little bit about your role? Yeah, I'm Sarah Shooter. I'm Head of Development at Theatre Royal Wakefield. Um, we're a small theatre um, in the north of England. Um, my role is right across fundraising. We're quite a small team. There's one and a half of us um, and we cover all areas of, areas of fundraising. So I work in individual giving, corporate giving, trust and foundations, as well as fundraising events. So um, and we do a whole host of different things within those different areas um, at the theatre. Thanks so much, Sarah. Amma, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am Amma. I am fundraising manager at the Royal Opera House, uh, where I work uh, within membership and fundraising campaigns, dealing with appeals and campaigns. Um, and I also have experience working with... So our team is quite a large team uh, of about 50 people, um, but I have a lot of experience of working with in smaller departments um, and... We'll talk about that later. Thanks so much, both of you. And a big hello to everyone who is joining us in the chat function. I see we've got a lot of people working in individual giving joining us today. So you're in the right place. Um, 
Now, of course, yeah, you two both work in the arts sector, but I know you've also had those very varied sector careers, as you were just saying. So I guess my first question, I'd like to ask you both, how does individual giving benefit your overall fundraising strategy? And also, how have you seen that change in the last two years? Because we've seen an incredibly disruptive time for the charitable sector. Sarah, I'll start with you, if that's all right. Yeah, so... Um... Individual giving at the minute, where I'm working now, is really central to our overall fundraising strategy um, and has definitely become even more so over the last two years. Um, fundraising for me is very much about relationships and building relationships, and that is really central to that kind of creation of fundraising. I work um, in, a, in a, we're a city, but we're a very small city, and we're very sort of interconnected. Um, a lot of our corporate donors feel like individual givers in the sense of that community network that we create at the theatre. Um, and for us, our individual donors are much more than donors. They're also our audiences, they're our participants, they're our performers, they buy tickets, they buy drinks, they buy all sorts of different things. So for me, individual giving is is covers all areas of fundraising in the sense that it's overarching. It's about building relationships with people and those people who want to support you and support your work, whether that's through donations, whether that's through volunteering their time, whether that's through being active um, in your organisation. Um, for us, it's changed massively in the last two years. Well, we kind of always knew that and always did it. I think um, having to close for COVID and being closed for such a long period of time really allowed us to explore individual giving and explore the relationships we had with those individuals. When we first closed, we were absolutely overwhelmed with the number of people who were donating their ticket money back to us, who were sending us messages, who were tweeting, Instagramming their stories about why they were really upset we were closed, how they were going to miss our pantomime, all those different things that were going to happening. And I think that community and that community around um, our charity and the work that we do was really, really important. And to me, that's individual giving. It's not necessarily a individual giving you a, an amount of money. It's about the way you work with people and how that's embedded into your ethos in fundraising and how you see it so that you don't necessarily always have to separate each area of fundraising out. Um, it's about how you how you tell your story and how you generate um, that interest in, in the work you're doing, whether that's like us in the arts sector or right across all the different sectors. Um, to, I think that's what's really important to me and that's what's really key to the strategy for us for individual giving. Thank you so much, Sarah. And Sarah, we have a comment in the chat bar which says it's amazing to see Wakey represented here. I used to work with Theatre Royal Wakefield and their community work is incredible. I'm excited to hear the updates and advice. So you've got at least one fan in the audience there. Um, Amma, what, what's your take on individual giving and how does that work for you and for your organisation? Um, so similarly, it is across, you know, the fundraising across the organisation, individual giving. As, as Sarah said, you know, our donors are the people who buy tickets, who come to our shows, who engage with our uh, learning and participation. Um, and so it's really just about making sure that you have that communication and they're aware of what's going on because they're the people who will be coming. I think one of the main, one of the big things that I've seen, um, especially in the arts, um, from the last two years in individual giving is people understanding that you're a charity. I think that if it was a it, it was a horrible time to be closed and not have anything to to be, have on, but people were 
fully understanding oh wait it's a charity this is why I give money and and even in people donating tickets and realizing oh actually like this is something that I could continue doing in a smaller way possibly um and just being able to start having conversations in that way um really opened opened up about individual giving and talking about that and I think as well it it created a sort of community like being able to when people did donate um tickets and things like that being able to engage with them with what else is going on and and inviting people in that way um but i think yeah one of the main things is people knowing that theaters are in our actual charities and and that you can support and and why um and i think that's one of the main things as well people asking what is the money going towards what am i supporting and being very transparent about that um with nothing on being able to talk about actually even though we are close we're doing this on zoom we're still supporting our young people and just making sure that people know what's going on even when the doors are closed I think it's a really big moment absolutely and thinking about the different ways that people give as well of course when we're here we're really talking about monetary donations but people also give of their time they volunteer and a lot of the time people who have relationships with these organizations it will be that much broader much more holistic partnership Sarah as you were saying than just someone who is simply putting their hand in their pocket every month Um, and I've seen a couple of people in the chat function as well saying that they are looking into launching membership schemes which is great and just as a side note to everyone who's listening today if you do have any questions for our panelists as we're talking please stick them in the chat bar or stick them in the Q&A bar we'll make time to answer those at the end but membership schemes now I know that both of you have these and these are quite a big part of your individual giving strategy and Sarah in fact you launched a new membership scheme during the pandemic can you tell us a little bit about why you did that and what are the kind of things that are included in that now for your donors yeah um why is a very good question why launch a membership scheme that's centered around um ticket discounts and priority booking when you're shut in the middle of a pandemic um a lot of people thought we were we were mad um but for us it was going back to what we've both been saying it was about the relationships that we have with those people who engage with us and the way in which we can steward them it was also great timing we had a membership scheme that was dying a slow painful death and nobody could quite work out how to end it and start a new one and the pandemic just gave us that opportunity to do it it gave us that chance to be able to step back a little bit spend a bit of time developing a new scheme and relaunch it while we weren't in that muddy water of some people being in one scheme some people being in the other Mm -hmm. scheme and everything kind of being live um the scheme's based on a five-tier system um it starts at 30 pounds it goes up to a thousand pounds Um, with different benefits in between but it was very much more than that it was very much more about celebrating and bringing together all our individual donors within an umbrella that allowed us to steward people that allowed us to have a conversation with people that allowed us to talk to them about both what we were doing and what their donations could make a difference to do Um, so we brought together sort of our individual donation scans, um, strand and our membership scheme all together to allow us to steward people properly. And a lot of that goes back to as well, the, the difference um, for us in terms of working in a small team and trying to be realistic about what time we could spend on individual giving, what time we had to spend on the other areas of fundraising, but making sure that we were really clear how much we valued our members and how much we valued those people who were donating to us. Um, I said earlier, we saw an outpouring of love in the early stages of the pandemic. We really saw that connection. I think we kind of knew it, 
but it sparked something within us seeing quite how dramatic some of the stories were in the sense of how much we really did make a difference. You like to think you make a difference and you tell everyone you make a difference. So it was really nice to see that tangible evidence of people telling us that unsolicited, do you know what I mean, unasked for, were coming forward to sort of say, keep your heads up, keep going. I mean, we really want you to reopen. Wakefield won't be the same if the theatre closes. We'd run crowdfunders, donations, appeals, all sorts of different things. And I was feeling like I was losing track of everybody. So a lot of this for, for me was bringing people together. It was about us being able to tell our story. It was about us having a focus internally to tell that story. We're really good, I think, at Theatre Our World, uh, Wakefield, at working with lots and lots of communities. We're terrible about telling people we're doing it um and shouting about it and kind of going no actually we're really good do you know what I mean that that was the bit we weren't as good at and this has given us a chance through a different form of communication to be able to say thank you to our members you've allowed Chime our group for learning disabled young people to carry on on Zoom during the pandemic and then be able to have a a dialogue about what that organ what that project is what difference that makes And then to span off in terms of recruiting people to it and all the other different things you wanted to do. And it's kind of allowed us to do that. And that's kind of where the emphasis for the membership scheme came. Very much about a two-way relationship, very much about allowing us to properly steward people, properly thank them, properly um, acknowledge. But also for us, acknowledge that a small donation really does matter. A small donation Mm. really does count. And that donating £35 to join the scheme makes a humongous difference to what we're doing um, and allows us to really kind of have that continual guaranteed funding to know that that money is coming in to carry on so that people didn't feel they had to be giving large amounts of money before we were interested in them or before their donation made a difference. So it's kind of our membership scheme is part of our individual giving. It's not separate to, it's not another part of it. It's, it's, it's very much the centre of what we're doing for us. And it allows us to steward and it allows us to thank people properly. Um, we do it in slightly different ways. It's allowed us to be f- experimental. We've started inviting people into rehearsals, technical rehearsals, backstage tours, all the different things that you, we've got in the sense of because we're a charity with a building that does something, we have things that when you work in a theatre feel really boring, but you forget that actually people are really interested in them. Um, and they're really intrigued to find out what's going on. Um, those kind of no, money can't buy type experiences. Mm. And it's allowed us to really do that. So um, I could go on forever about the, the membership scheme. I'm just gonna end by saying one quick thing is pre-pandemic, and this is a whole year pre-pandemic, the old scheme raised 3000 pounds. The last financial year, bearing in mind half of that year we were closed, the scheme raised £10,000. And that's just by talking to people in a different way. That was also done on a budget of £2,000 and is currently being run on a budget of £1,000. It doesn't need a huge amount of money behind it to be successful. It's the genuine and the kind of the way in which you look at doing it. There's lots of tools at your disposal now to be able to do this work and it doesn't have to cost somebody an awful lot of money to be able to do it. Well, those numbers certainly speak for themselves, and I'm sure I'll be getting plenty of questions in the chat bar asking for more information, Sarah, on how you did that on such a <laughs> tiny budget. Um, I think what I'd like to pull up on as well, Sarah, is just what you were saying there about really emphasising that a small donation does make a huge difference. And I think that is so important. You know, £35, it can do an enormous amount for, you know, your charity and um, particularly 
as I have seen in a post-pandemic world, people are really community-minded at the moment. And there is a real drive among kind of donors and supporters of charities to want to know that their money is making that material difference. So that communication piece cannot be understated. Um, Emma, uh, Sarah has pulled out so many <laughs> themes there. Um, do you have anything to build on there? If you, uh, you know, do you have any advice about where to start? What are the bare bones that you start with when you're thinking about building that strong, effective membership scheme? Anything you would draw on from the Royal Opera House? I would say, like Sarah said, why? Why do we want to have this membership scheme? Obviously, we want to raise money, but what is it that we are able to give? And to be able to have that set out and know what it is that you are able to give and why, um, I think is the main like foundation that you need. I think also as well, talking to the people who already support you or have previously and asking what would they, you know, in an ideal world, what would they get from a membership? What would attract them to support further? Um, and sort of leaning into, and like Sarah said, what you already do, rehearsals, backstage tours, like, those are the things that people, you know, they, they're like, how does this get made? Like being able to see, you know, behind the scenes and the conversations and being able to see like a, a set display, a model box display and things like that that are really exciting and, and things that people love to see. Um, I think, you know, telling if, if you have a current uh, a membership and you're, you're, you know, trying to change it, speaking to those members about why do they give, what, what would encourage them to to continue giving or have they ever or and also looking at other organizations that are maybe a similar size or have a membership scheme that you really like and and talking to them talking to other organizations about how they why they are doing what they do and and sort of you know picking and choosing what you like and, and creating your own from that um but yeah I think Sarah's done an amazing job they like to launch that in the crazy time that we've had is just amazing yeah um, so we've just had a question in the group chat, which says, you know, does a membership scheme only work for the arts? And of course, you do both work in the artistic sectors. But I do think that's also worth expanding on, you know, if you are a charity that doesn't have a membership scheme and you want effective ways of building those relationships with, you know, your donors, um, is it the same rules? Do they the same rules apply? I think if you do want to have a membership scheme and you don't have, you know, a building where people can go or something that people want to see. Um, I previously worked at the Kiln and they don't have a membership scheme. Yes, they are a theatre. But I think the main thing that allows them to do that is just communicating. Obviously, you're raising money for, you know, to, to support um, to support something and so being very clear about what it is you're supporting maybe having price points of what it um, what 10 pounds could do what 20 pounds can do I feel like especially you know with the world and everything going people really want to know specifically what could 10 pounds do and what would that you know because people feel like as Sarah said that if, you, if I can't give you a thousand pounds, then what's the point? When any donation amount is important and making sure that people are aware of that. Um, and I think, yeah, being being very, being able to communicate, having also having a website that, that shows what you do um, and shows what donation can do. And also maybe having quotes from people who are already given why. Um, I think, yeah, is a, is, a, is a good way to, when you don't have something physical that people can go to but having things that people can look at and understand more about you is really important. Oh, you're on me. Um, oh. Emily. 
so sorry obviously it wouldn't be uh wouldn't be a virtual no. panel <laughs> i was just saying we're getting lots and lots of questions coming in on the chat there um and but i think you know one definitely to answer and sarah i know that you spoke about doing your great work on a tiny budget um a lot of these organizations are very small they can be operating on a really lean shoestring team so do you have any advice about how to build those strong local relationships, how to build your kind of individual giving if you do not have a massive budget to work with. Sarah, I'll start with you just because you've clearly got a lot of experience in this area. Um, I think for me, it's just about being open and honest and realistic. Don't overpromise something that you can't do. Be really clear about what you, you can and can't do. Automate as much as you can, but change it regularly we are we have different levels of thank yous for different levels of donations yes it's automated when certain things come in but the message changes every couple of months so that if somebody donates more than once a year they don't get the same message and think oh that's I mean they really don't care or that's just a, a throwaway comment um we may and that doesn't take an awful lot of time it doesn't necessarily take an awful lot of resources I I, I I appreciate having the system for people to donate can do, do you know what I mean? But if, if that's already um, in place, I think it's about that constant, uh, as we keep saying, telling people what difference their donation makes, telling them how they do it, utilising social media, utilising other um, facilities that are available. I know not everybody's on that and it's not central, but it is, it is a really important tool. And there are different platforms that are used by different people of different ages, as I'm sure we all know, do you know what I mean? And making sure that you're cutting across all of that not just assuming that you're on you need to use Facebook because your audiences are all older or Instagram or, or TikTok because your audiences are younger looking at how you can integrate those thank yous looking at how you can send stuff out we limit what we sent out in the post and printed because that does cost more but we use the budget we've got to do it at least once a year so that those people at least once a year get something from us through the post that looks personalized that looks relevant to them and we do little things like handwriting letters to to key people who who we know about. We keep track of our donors. We use a lot, again, of automated systems internally so that we're not having to keep track of this. And I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging. Um, and we're all battling, whether we're a small organisation or a large organisation. I mean, everybody is struggling with budgets. Everybody's struggling with what they've got to spend on these campaigns. But again, to me, it's, it's all about the conversation. It's all about being open and honest, telling people what, what you're doing with their money and explaining to them limitations on how much you can time you can give them if they're donating donating to you whether that's through a membership scheme or just an individual giving scheme i think the theory works the same through through both ways thank you so much um Emma, anything to add um yeah but everything sarah says is great i think the only thing is just trying to use what you already have to to steward and and if you're having a membership to try and yeah use what was already planned so that you're not doing anything extra especially on a small budget um but yeah <laughs> and being just being transparent about what it is that you can do and and yes yeah, just not trying to just automating things and not trying to push too hard to because people yeah people understand and just being honest about what you can do and also as well i think always talking about the team when people are like oh if an email is taking long or you're like be expecting things to be like, oh, by the way, this is our team. We're three people. Um, and just I think that always is a is a really nice um, thing that people are then like, I understand now there is, is there is a small team behind this who is is doing this work. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think thinking about the people behind the programme is also about that kind of regular communication, getting in touch sometimes, not even if you're making the ask, but just to say, hey, thank you. This is what is going on with us at the moment. Um, just helps to keep that relationship alive, helps to keep it sustainable. Um, so loads of questions are coming in. So I'm going to turn to our audience now. Um, the first question I have is from Hayley Doon, who says, um, do you have someone focusing on membership, i.e. a staff member, or is it part of someone else's job? So I guess how does that kind of um, membership sort of structure feed into your wider overall giving structure? Um, Emma? Um, so we do have uh, a membership manager who does look after that and then... A, a few officers who who help with that I think we um and yeah so because I think we do we have a very large in the in the thousands of members who support at, at various levels and obviously as a as a large organization we need a, a few people to help with that and and they also have um events and uh, dress rehearsals a, a big thing that people come to um but yeah it's 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 a few people who do who do an amazing job <laughs> Fantastic. Sarah, how about you at Theatre Royal Wakefield? Um, the colleague who works with me, who works um, half time a week, um, basically oversees our membership scheme. And because our membership scheme is growing, we've kind of changed the department around a little bit to reflect that and reflect the, the value um, of that scheme to the organisation financially as well. So we do take into account which area generates us the most money in terms of mm -hmm. where the staff time goes to, as everybody else does. But it is a wider team effort for us. We we're I keep saying we're small, but that's kind of central to what we do. We're small, so everyone knows us. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And <laughs> um, they they we see people in the, our, our front of house manager. No, we've only got three or four hundred members. Bearing in mind we're only a four hundred seater theatre. Do you know what I mean? That's quite a significant number of people for us. Um, but our front of house manager knows people. Our volunteers know people. We've very much tried to work, as Emma said, by using everybody who's already there not to double up mm. work so that we can welcome people that we can engage with people as we're coming in so it can be done it can be done on a relatively small team and um hopefully the membership scheme will grow over the next 12 months and we'll get a new member of staff to reflect the fact that it's generating so much income do you know what I mean and that's that's why you do it because it has its benefits internally as well as um for the people who are engaging and can really help build the the development team we've got so I think every they, it all counts, but as Emma says, they've got thousands of members, members and there's no way on earth we could manage that with the staff we've got, do you know what I mean? So it does, I think the scheme that you've got reflects the staff you've got working on it. Fantastic, thank you. I'm going to stay with you, Sarah, because I have a question from Amy Swainston who says, what kind of tools did you use on such a small budget? We're trying to grow individual giving as a small charity, but we're struggling to get investment from our board. Yeah. Um, we used a mixture of different things. We did, as I said, we, we invested a little bit of extra money in it initially and we took the time. Um, it took a lot of time. I'm not going to pretend it didn't, but we hand, hand wrote letters um, to our regular donors um, and those people who were ta um, tagged as donating at a higher level. Um, where possible, we wrote um, extra messages on printed letters where perhaps we knew the person personally or we had an interconnection with them and we sent letters out. 
Um, we then followed that up by email. We followed up some people with phone calls who we had relationships with. And it was very much building on the database that we'd already got in place, not just members, but people, people who donated to us, people who we've got connections with, our participants. We also used our network. So we encouraged other people to share and pass it out. We did print a leaflet and we took a leaflet around various places. Um, and we used, um, utilized social media. And again, it was very much about telling a story. So we got, we were lucky. We, our young people were still meeting to do their, um, their performance academy training. We got them to do as little videos. We got them to do as little sharings that we could send out to people to say, thank you for joining or consider joining. It's, it's thanks to people like you that I'm able to do this, that it's thanks to you that we're able to do that. So we went for the real personal message. I don't know where the person who asked the question works for, but the fact that we were a local organization in a local area really was what we what we tagged onto for us. That's what we went. We talked about how Wakefield would be really different if we didn't have the theatre in Wakefield. We're the only theatre in the district. We talked about what would be lost for the community if we if we were lost um, and the difference that the donation could make from, like Emma said, from two pounds, which would support Conversation Cafe, our refugee and asylum seeker project, that that would pay for the tea and coffee for that day, right up to a hundred pounds, which would be a bursary for a term for a young person to come to our performance academy. So it was a mixture. And if you can, I would recommend post, particularly at the minute, people don't get as much post as they used to, and it is getting a much better traction. I'm aware it's more expensive um, and it's about how you do it, but that definitely got us a good response, um, which we then followed up using sort of email and phone calls. Fantastic, thank you so much. Um, I've got a question from Samantha Evans, which says, can I ask what you could offer members who don't have, well, you know, if we're an organization that doesn't necessarily have access to the kind of opportunities that have been mentioned on your panel, we are a charity that support people with complex benefits and housing issues. And so we don't really have anything that could be offered to donor, donors as a unique opportunity. Do you have any thoughts on this? Now, I feel like storytelling might rear its head again but um Amma do you have any thoughts I don't obviously as well the people who it's affecting they need to be okay with talking but I know that um maybe having a zoom zoom conversation where they talk about how your charity has helped them um to put a face to what someone has donated or to have um yeah, as in we're talking about events, aren't we? So then things like that, you know, putting a, a human face to to your charity. Um, and then also maybe speaking about the people who work within the charity and what they do. People always, you know, that you understand that you're helping people, but also to speak about the work that goes into helping those people um, and a behind the scenes look at these are the staff who help um, these individuals. Um, I feel like people do do like to learn more about what charity does. And then by seeing who works there, you're sort of seeing what your money does, not only to help that person, but helping, but but, but also through this person who is doing that work, if that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sarah, any thoughts? I think just the same. And I don't think it has to be a membership scheme. It's about stewarding um, your individual givers. They don't have to join something. They don't have to get something in return but it's about that relationship you have with those people yes we have a membership scheme because we can offer something in return and we do have some people who purely join to get the ticket discount because if they come for enough shows they get their 35 pounds back 
we have a lot of other people who just join because they want to support us. And actually, if we didn't call it a membership scheme, would still give us that give us that donation every single year. And it's about differentiating between those people. You will have a lot of people who just want to support you. And what Anna says about those conversations are vital. It's about telling those people what their money has done and just bringing them together in a group. Because for us as well, I think membership schemes and schemes like that can just be about people not feeling alone. Can just be about feeling like they're part of a group of people who are supporting you. So is there any way you can bring those people together virtually on paper, in newsletters, in, through sharing stories? It doesn't have to be everybody sat in a room together, but people like to know they're part of something, I think. And that doesn't necessarily have to get any the benefit for them could just be supporting people. That could be, and I suspect if they're already donating to you, that's what they already want to do. So I think for me, it's just about taking the other elements of the scheme, things like sort of regular newsletters and contacts and things like that, that can just tell them, make them feel a little bit special, make them feel like they are important because they will be important to you, but just getting that across to them as well, that they are important, but they're also a part of a wider team who, who also want to support your work, um, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And as Giselle Sterry says in the chat, sometimes just that feel good factor is enough for people to become a member or a supporter, not something that you should underestimate. Well, we're just coming uh, to the end of our session, but I just wanted to put one final question to both of you before we wrap up, which is that, of course, we are staring down the barrel of a pretty catastrophic cost of living crisis. Um, I'm sure this is something that has been coming up um, frequently throughout today's sessions. Um, people are going to kind of have less with which to give at the moment. Do you have any advice or any thoughts on how charities should be evolving their narratives with their individual givers as we go through this very challenging financial climate just to kind of keep that conversation going, to keep them in, in touch, even if people aren't necessarily in a position in a few months time where they're able to give? Um, I think not being scared of still asking, I think that there's a lot of pressure from outside onto fundraisers sometimes to say, oh, nobody's got any money. Should we be asking? Should we be Should we be doing this? And I think we just continue to do that. We, but we just continue to tell people about the great work that we're all doing in our charities and to tell the story of why we need this funding and, and this fundraising. And people will choose. None of us are stood with people's arms up their back, making them to donate, making them donate. Everybody has chosen to donate to our charities. But I think, as we, we've said continually through this, continuing to tell people what difference their money makes and mm -hmm. continuing to value people. So if people have to reduce down the amount they're giving to you monthly or yearly, understanding and appreciating that and thanking them wholeheartedly for whatever they're able to continue to give um, would be all I would say on it. Because it is going to be challenging. It is going to be difficult. But we all know we can still do it. And we all know we can all still make that ask. And we just... We need to be open and honest and thank people and tell people what we're doing with the money and then they can make the decision on what they want to do. Yeah. Thanks so much. Emma, any final thoughts on that? Yeah, I think if someone's reducing their amount, like Sarah says, still thanking them for, for even if um, for still giving and what they have given, and even if they are cancelling their support, I think taking that moment, if you can, to say thank you for supporting us for however long it's been, um, we are really grateful. Um, I think, yeah, just being transparent, talking about... Um, 
if you know if how much being very open about your price points being open about yes yeah, still asking but understanding that people are coming from a very different time just being open about feedback and things like that um and and I feel like especially with people giving left they're, they're going to be asking more where is their money going who is it helping and just being ready to sort of answer those questions and and be forthcoming and I think yeah that's what we're going to need to do or continue doing fantastic well I think that's us out of time now so I would just like to say a huge thank you to Sarah and Amma this has been such an engaging conversation we've had so much interaction in the chat bar so clearly people are very uh, affected by your thoughts and everyone's saying thank you for a great session best of luck to both of you with your schemes and your individual giving and to everyone else in the chat as well week we're bringing you a good news bulletin positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector rebecca what have you got for us so i think this one comes under the heading of good news for a charity bad news for the person doing the fundraising <laughs> for them um this is a story from the times about paul goldstein who is a wildlife photographer and who spent 12 hours running the grueling everest marathon last month to raise money for worth more alive which is a charity which aims to prevent endangered animals from being hunted um and yeah as the name suggests the marathon is halfway up Everest. Uh, the race starts at 17,000 feet above sea level and is considered one of the toughest in the world. So naturally, Paul decided to make the feat harder for himself by doing it in a tiger costume. I mean, 17,000 feet is a long way above sea level. Yeah. The, the um, There are football matches, like international football matches in cities that are sort of 8,000 feet above sea level. And they always say, oh my God, it's so hard because you go there and the players who aren't used to it can barely run around they can barely get air into their lungs <laughs> your man's twice as as high above that and he's dressed as a tiger do we know why he's dressed as a tiger so yeah because the, the tiger is one of these animals that is is often um kind of hunted and butchered for parts oh, uh, you know and he's trying to say that they they should be worth more alive than they are dead and yeah actually when andy ricketts our news editor first mentioned the story to me i was kind of picturing in a tiger costume something like a tiger onesie um he's not a tiger onesie this thing is absolutely enormous it's nine foot tall and it weighs about 15 kilograms it looks so what it makes me think of was like a giant pez dispenser sitting on top of his head but like it's like three times as wide as his actual head like it's huge i will uh, put a link to this in the story on our website so people can see the pictures for themselves um so yeah it's a special kind of charity fundraiser who thinks I'm going to dress as a tiger, but now I'm going to make it a three foot tall Pez dispensing tiger, which is even harder while going at 17,000 feet. Um, we talked earlier about maybe being a bit less cynical about things. It's <laughs> it's a pretty extraordinary feat and uh, many congratulations to, to Paul and to his causes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he didn't have the best time in the world, I would say, uh, because he actually described it as, quote, the most miserable 12 hours of my life and agony. Um, but he did raise £100,000 for the charity, which is like, is an oppressive amount. Like when Andy first told me this, I was like, how much did he raise? Please tell me it wasn't like as much as, as you could raise like cycling to Amsterdam or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah, it's £100,000, which is, is a good amount for the charity. There is always a terrible moment in Third Sector Towers when we read these stories and at the bottom it says, you know, this person raised 200 quid. And yeah. you say, oh God, I'd give you 200 quid just so that you could stay at home and put your feet up. <laughs> yeah. There's no need. Uh, so Russell, what have you got for us? We've also got an update on a previous podcast, Good News Story. 
This is English Heritage's bid to break the world record for the most vampires gathered in one place at Whitby Abbey last month. And I've got good news. I'm delighted to announce that they did it. They needed at least 1,040 people in regulation black cloaks and fangs at the gathering, and they got an impressive 1,369 in attendance. So they absolutely smashed it. Well done, them. I, I love this record so much. I was so excited when we did the original story. I'm so glad they broke it. Absolutely fantastic work, everyone. Rebecca, I can't believe you reduced this to some sort of pun. There's so much at stake. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm really excited, genuinely. I think it's great to have a Guinness World Record that doesn't suck. <laughs> I, I think we're actually slaying with these puns. Okay, all right. Uh, but I think we should wrap it up. Uh, so we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Russell Hargrave. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guests, Sarah Shooter and Amma Afari Darko, and to our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.